Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Even if you're the most law-abiding citizen, getting pulled over by a police officer can be unnerving. If that happens, do you know what's legally required of you? Do you know how to avoid putting yourself at risk for bigger legal troubles? Ideally, none of that happens to you. But there are some simple steps you can think about now that can help you through an unfortunate encounter with the criminal justice system. That conversation starts after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A South Dakota Senate committee is rejecting an effort to rename the Scalp Creek Lakeside Recreation Area in the state. Democrat Senator Sean Bordeaux is Sichangu, Lakota from Rosebud. He says it's time for the state to move away from hurtful names. Scalp Creek Recreation Area is a beautiful place, often visited by families and children. Such a place should not be marked by an association with such terrible history. South Dakota should take the initiative here and change the name to fit the place. Bordeaux proposes the area be named Nakatopa, which translates to Four Chiefs. State Game Fish and Parks opposed the bill idea. Scott Simpson is Deputy Secretary with the department. He says the name change should not appear in state statute. This legislation is not necessary because South Scout Creek Lakeside Use Area is not named in statute. I think that that should be a much more public process. There's no official process for the, the naming of the lakeside use area. We believe that we've got an open palette, and I visited with the, the sponsor about this. Um, I think that there's some different directions that we could go and maybe come up with uh, an appropriate uh, alternative. Simpson says a name change public input process could take as long as a year, but could not offer a firm timeline. Senator Bordeaux says he'll work with Game, Fish, and Parks officials through the process. The leader of an effort to create an intertribal network of electric vehicle charging stations says the project is rolling along. Chuck Kornbach of station WUWM reports. Bob Blake heads Native Sun Community Power Development, a nonprofit in Minneapolis that promotes renewable energy. Blake is also a tribal citizen of the Red Lake Nation. He says a few years ago he was protesting the Dakota Access crude oil pipeline in the upper Midwest and staring down law enforcement officers that he respected. I'm sitting there and I'm protesting and they're looking at me and I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be an easier way to do this. So in an attempt to reduce the demand for oil, Blake says he got the idea of creating an intertribal electric vehicle charging network. With financial help from the U.S. Department of Energy, about 10 charging stations have been built on tribal lands, and electric vehicles have been delivered to the Red Lake and Standing Rock communities. Blake says 20 to 30 tribes, mainly in the upper Midwest, seem interested in creating the charging network. So he's fired up. I am pretty excited about it because it's always, you know, tribal nations are always the last to get this type of technology. You know, for us to be able to be the first, I mean, it's a big thing. Blake says having charging stations on a lot of tribal lands should also help draw tourists if electric vehicle use continues to grow. He says he hopes to expand the intertribal charging station network to the West Coast. For National Native News, I'm Chuck Kornbach.
On Monday, the New Mexico Senate confirmed Josette Monette as Cabinet Secretary for the Indian Affairs Department. She had served as Deputy Secretary of the Department and prior to joining the state was in the legal field and in education. Monette is from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians in North Dakota, and she's raised three children as a single mother. In a statement, Monette says she's committed to advancing the priorities of the governor's administration in support of the 23 tribes in the state and all of New Mexico's Native people. She's replacing a cabinet secretary who was criticized by Native women advocates for past abuse charges. The governor's office also faced criticism for ending a missing and murdered Indigenous Relatives Task Force. Monette was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from NativeScreenPrinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Do you know what to do if a police officer pulls you over? Do you know your rights when it comes to answering an officer's questions? Even the most law-abiding citizen is unnerved under police scrutiny. And our guest today will tell you that there are added disconnects between Native people and police that can lead to misunderstandings and worse. They point to one factor in statistics by the Prison Policy Initiative and others showing Native people are incarcerated at a much higher rate than the general population. Today we'll talk with Native legal experts about the basics of the criminal justice system. At the very least, you'll learn what to do if you are arrested. And later in the hour, we'll talk with an Indigenous reporter who was arrested while covering a story. Do you also have a story about being arrested or pulled over? A situation where maybe you felt you were treated unfairly. Tell us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our phone lines are now open. And you can also comment on our website or social media pages. Joining us now from Las Vegas, New Mexico, is Chico Gallegos. He is an attorney, counselor, and a Hickoria Apache warrior. Hello, Chico. Great to have you on the show. Good morning. Great to be here. Good morning to you as well. And joining us from Oklahoma is Robert Gifford. He is a Native American law attorney, a tribal court judge, and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Hi, Robert. Great to have you joining us as well. All right, we're going to go ahead and say hello to Robert in just a minute. But first, Chico, I'm going to begin with you. And this is a very hot topic we're covering today. I think a lot of Native people, myself included, have had run-ins with police officers where we felt we were treated unfairly, taken advantage of maybe, or even worse. In all your years practicing law in New Mexico, Chico, 
representing Native clients, have there been cases where if a person had a better understanding of their rights, they might have faced a different outcome? Oh, definitely. Uh, I've, I've been practicing law. I think I'm in my 29th year uh, right now. And I think, you know, anybody who has encounters uh, with law enforcement that end up in uh, being charged or, end, you know, having to go to court, uh, those initial and early interactions uh, have a big impact on the outcome of the case. Um, you know, I will start off by saying, I should, and I should probably say this now at the beginning, uh, you know, I'm not giving legal advice. I can't give legal advice uh, without a, an, an attorney-client relationship. And the answer to most legal questions is kind of cliche, but the, the, the beginning answer to most legal questions is it depends. And so I'll kind of <laughs> start out with that. But, but, but definitely, I mean, I'll also say that I've had some, some really good examples and good, good experiences with police officers uh, my brother is a retired state police officer. My son is a, currently a New Mexico state police officer, and they do a, a really good job. But, you know, there's a lot of pressure on law enforcement, uh, different kinds of pressures, um, um, you know, political pressures, societal pressures, uh, pressures from within their chain of command and things of that sort. But I would say, you know, if I could just start off with some general advice uh, or some general uh, observations, you know, people that make certain mistakes when they're getting arrested or they have a police encounter. The first is not to, you know, not to resist. Uh, you know, we've had our talks with our children. I think many of us, you know, do have, have these talks um, is, you know, move slowly, move deliberately, don't resist, uh, you know, especially if, if you're in that um, stage where you're being arrested. Uh, you do have, whether you're Mirandized or not, whether you read your Miranda warnings or not, you do have a right to remain silent. And my recommendation is to always, you know, don't say too much. Don't, you know, um, you have a right to, to have the uh, uh, advice of an attorney. So make sure that you, you know, you exercise that right. Um, you know, oftentimes the police will try to build rapport with you and they're, you know, they're not necessarily being sneaky, but they'll build, you know, start having a conversation with you or they say, oh, hey, do you know so-and-so, you know, are you from, you know, you're from this community? Oh, yeah, I know that person. And pretty soon, you know, you're you're spilling your guts to them, which, you know, okay. could always come back to, to bite you. Chico, because this has happened to me before, where a police officer, and just right away they have an attitude. I've, I've been called chief before, just, hey, chief. Where are you going tonight? Mm -hmm. What are you up to? I mean, when they come at you and they've already got that chip on their shoulder, still just just be chill and just play along. Is that the advice? Yeah, you know, I, I think you, you can be chill. Now, those initial encounters, and I've had I've had the same types of encounters and been you know been called those those names, and it man, it gets your it gets to you right away. You know, it gets gets that blood boiling, and we you know that fight mode kind of comes into play, but. Yeah, you can't let them. You can't let them. You know, get under your skin. Most of those encounters, those initial encounters, are, are consensual. So, and that's mutually consensual. So that means you don't necessarily have to give them your name. You don't necessarily have to give them any identification. If it if it if it advances to the point where they're saying, "Hey, you know, I have reason to believe that you, you know, you were involved in this crime or 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 that," then you know that that advances to a different uh, type of a, an encounter. It's a non-consensual encounter. 
And now we're looking at, you know, Fourth Amendment type stuff where you may have to provide identification. Um, but those are, you know, those are judgment calls. But, but yeah, th those those situations are rough because, you know, those are encounters that other other people don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Being called, you know, being egged on, being poked at, to try, you know, they're trying to get a rise out of you. They're trying to make you make a mistake. All the more reason to, to keep your cool. Right, right. Chico, when is the moment that you give law enforcement an ID? Should you always furnish the ID when requested? You, you don't have to. I mean, it varies by state. There are some states that, that do require it. Anytime a police officer asks you for an ID, you're supposed to give it to them. Um, but again, you you know, you got to use your best judgment. If you're, you know, you got to, you got to, sometimes you guys got to, and those of us, you know, Native people, African-Americans, what I call brown people, we we have to have an added, kind of an added level of discretion um, because we don't want things to, to get out of, out of hand. You know, we can't be scared and, and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to perpetuate, you know, the, the, the oppression and, and, and things of that sort. But at the same time, we got to use some common sense. And, you know, if it's, if it'll, if it'll move things along uh, and you feel like there's not any harm in, in providing an ID, you know, go ahead and provide it. But if it's just, you're walking down the street, minding your own business and the police comes up to you and says, Hey, what's your name? Right. I need a CID. You don't, you don't necessarily have to provide it. Okay. Chico, here's another uh, situation I've been in. I think a lot of other listeners can relate to this. You get pulled over and you're minding your own business. You're driving the speed limit. You haven't broken any laws. And then the police officer comes up and says, oh, I'm pulling you over because uh, you made a rolling stop back there or, or you made an incorrect lane change. And you know you did or you did not. You know you were driving mm -hmm. smooth, but they say you weren't. And, and then all of a sudden it's like your word against theirs. What do you do? Well, I think, you know, if, if they're, if they're going to volunteer that information and say that's why they stopped, then say, well, you know, did, did you have your dash cam on? I'd like to take a look at that. Um, you know, most, most law enforcement agencies also have lapel, lapel video. And so, you know, those interactions hopefully are, are, or should be, or should be recorded. A lot of times, you know, that's what they call a pretext, uh, a pretextual stop. They're stopping you for something that's, that's routine, that really, you know, is kind of their word against yours, your word against theirs. And they may want to try to develop something else. They want to say, oh, the driver was nervous. Um, you know, I smelled an odor of marijuana coming, emitting from the vehicle. I smelled an odor of alcohol emitting from the vehicle. And they try to use that to develop, you know, mm -hmm. to develop a, another charge or another case. Um, you're not going to win an argument on the spot with the police officer. <laughs> no. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. But this you know, is... that's the thing too, is you don't, you know, don't at that point, sometimes you're wanting to, you know, you're wanting to convince the officer, Hey, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, and then, you know, they get, they kind of get you in a, in a conversation and you end up saying too much. Uh, you know, the, that kind of leads to another, another topic. It's kind of a broader topic, but you know, searches, in New Mexico in particular, you know, warrantless searches are unfavored in New Mexico. They prefer that you get warrants. There are exceptions, and consent is one of the exceptions. And so a lot of times an officer will ask for consent to search your vehicle, thinking or 
the idea is that, well, if you don't have anything to hide, then, you know, you shouldn't have any problem with me searching your vehicle. You do not have to consent to a search. I've had in Albuquerque, I had a police officer one time uh, just pull me over. I was with a couple of friends, pulled us over and uh, very quickly into the interaction, he just reached it. It was a four door and he just reached back and tried to open the back, uh, the back door and it was locked and uh, I just unlocked it for him. You know, I knew he didn't have a warrant or anything, but I was just like, I don't need the hassle. I don't have anything to hide. But at the right. same time, I knew he didn't have a right to do that. Was, is that the right thing to do? Is that smart or should I just kept the door locked? Well, I mean, those are tough, tough judgments in the moment, right? Because you're like, oh, yeah. man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a police officer. I don't know who this person is. I don't know what they're, what, you know, what they're thinking. Um and it's just going to be easier just to get through this. But but you do not have to consent consent to a search. If they have grounds, they can get a you know they can get a warrant. Of course, they say, well, you know, by the time I go, you know, I'm going to seize your vehicle. I'm not going to search it, but I'm going to seize your vehicle. And you know, I may not have the warrant for a few hours, or I may not have it till tomorrow. And at that point, people are like, ah, oh, well, just you know, go ahead and search. Yeah, because you just but, want to get home. You just want to get home right. and, and get on with your life. You don't want to turn this yeah. into like some big old thing. Yeah. No, this is good information, Chico. Appreciate you uh, getting our conversation started. And we're going to take our first break here. And we've got a caller on the line already who uh, has a question or a comment. And if anybody else would like to chime in today, let us know your thoughts. We're talking about dealing with police officers, dealing with the criminal justice system. And we have experts on the show today who uh, cannot give us specific legal advice because it depends, right? But they can give us some good general information. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When musician and designer Pharrell Williams debuted his new Western-themed line for Louis Vuitton at Men's Fashion Week in Paris, it included contributions by Native artists. It's a major step for inclusion in an industry that has had some notable missteps with Native designers. We'll visit with Native artists who worked on the collection on the next Native America Calling. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. From interacting with the police to making bail, we're getting insights into challenges of navigating the criminal justice system. Later on in the hour, we'll hear from Cree journalist Brandy Morin, who was recently arrested while covering a story in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada. Join this conversation with a common or question. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. And again, a disclaimer, our guests cannot give specific legal counsel. Let's take our first caller, Michael, listening on KUNM in Jemez Pueblo, New Mexico. Hello, Michael. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like this topic because, uh, you know, Albuquerque is a border town, and you have uh, a, a numerous amount of uh, uh, Pueblos li living on the outskirts. And, you know, there's a lot of interaction in in Albuquerque, especially uh, 
uh, when you go shopping or even looking for a job. And uh, I was telling the, the uh, uh, question a while ago that I said, uh, well, this should, all this information right now should be taught in schools, and, and especially in border town, border border uh, reservations, because. Uh, you know, it, it's it's neutral ground, you know, because uh, especially in high school, you got to teach these students what they what they might encounter. And uh, and another angle to that is uh, is your native tongue. If you if you if you speak your native tongue all your life, it gives you an accent when you talk English. And then you gotta you gotta t- 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 teach the students that this is gonna happen, and don't take it harsh because. That you know, you might be made fun of or whatever, but at the same time, that if, if you don't, if, you, if that hits, you, slams you in the face, that already puts the chips on your shoulder, and you become, and you become anguished, and and you keep that in you. And uh, like I said, all this should be taught in school, especially in high school, because a lot of once once a lot of not everybody goes to college, even in college, but it, not everybody goes to college to seek employment, and they got to know what they're up against. They got to have all this urban urban knowledge urban survival skills urban survival skills i like that expression michael uh great call yes definitely practical life skills that native people can use in situations like this aren't necessarily taught in schools chico back to you and uh let's talk about the next step here let's say a person does get arrested maybe they get charged dealing with judges prosecuting attorneys juries what do native people need to know as defendants in the criminal justice system, first and foremost? Uh, those are really, really good questions. Uh, I can really appreciate also the callers, you know, the callers' insights there because it is, you know, we're, I remember I was I'm kind of aging and dating myself, but I was told by relatives to uh, listen to the 6 o'clock news if I wanted to learn how to talk English right. <laughs> but uh, and I tried. I listened to Walter Cronkite as much as I could, but I could never master that accent. But you know, it, it is a daunting. You know, it is a daunting uh, um, system. And and for us, I think for Native people, it can even be more complex and 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 intimidating. You know, there is culturally there's a lot of cultural issues, disconnects. Uh, sometimes you know we do have a deference, oftentimes to authority. Um, so I will say, you know, if you are arrested, um, you know, the first thing is don't talk to anyone until you talk to a lawyer and ask for a lawyer and say, I need to speak to an attorney. Uh, even third parties, sometimes you get on the phone. Most, most phone calls from jails are recorded and they will use what you say. So, you know, you call your auntie or you call your uncle or someone and you're like, oh, you know, I did this, I did that. Those statements can, can come back to and be used against you. So, you know, stay off of social media. Uh, that's another, another important thing is to stay off of social media. And then also, you know, be wary of advice from unqualified third parties. You know, we call them jailhouse lawyers. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, if, if they were that good, they probably wouldn't be in jail. But, uh, but you know, those, those kinds of things can kind of, can kind of trip you up. Um, you know, I will say, you know, most people in New Mexico or a good, a good number of people do qualify for a public defender. Um, public defenders, I think, sometimes get a bad rap as far as their competencies. Um, you know, the public defenders that I've worked with are very, very skilled, very good attorneys. They are overworked. Uh, in fact, there was a study that was done in uh, back in 
2022, I believe, um, by the American Bar Association that really did kind of highlight the the need for more um, uh, public defenders uh, just to handle the caseloads. But uh, the other thing I would say is, is, as a Native person, is actively participate in your defense. Don't make assumptions. Uh, attorneys can't read your minds. Uh, and we do have a different way of looking at the world, and we do have a different way of communicating. And so, you know, you got to help your attorney present and prepare the best, um, the best defense. And so be an active participant. Uh, you know, criminal law is constitutional law. Um, you got to also remember in New Mexico, our New Mexico Constitution in many instances provides greater protection than even the federal Constitution. Um, but, you know, the courts are the proving grounds, in my opinion. The mm. courts are the proving grounds for, for the Constitution. Um, you know, that's, if it doesn't work for everyone, including brown people, including poor people, including people with mental health issues, including people with substance abuse issues, if it doesn't work for all people, it doesn't work for anyone. And so, you know, the courts really are the, the proving grounds and the testing grounds for the Constitution. Oh, great insights, Chico. We're going to take another caller now, Chanupa, who is listening on Keeley Radio in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, thank you for this uh, subject, too. You know, my grandfather was the chief of police here on Pine Ridge, the Indian Reservation here many years ago. He's passed on. But Grandpa always did this. He never stopped our people if they broke the law intentionally, meaning the white law. But law enforcement today is paid for by the rich, and people don't get this anymore. So if people are having a good time, birthday party, whatever, and they're you know living their life accordingly, white people, when they see the, the happiness of people of color celebrating a birthday or whatever, they send law enforcement to their homes to check on it. It's like a security check. That's not true. The system doesn't understand that when laws are prohibited to protect people, like the people having the birthday party and so forth, white man, white America has always practiced and perfected those knowledges against our people. My grandpa used to do this all the time. And I love that. caller. I knew stunk there. See, the language is more of the key, and I'm I'm pretty sure that these attorneys understand that too, because white America has always, man, begged to differ when it comes to people being happy. We're not interfering with ourselves with white folks. White people get drunk, they drive drunk. Nobody touches them. No one. But when it comes to somebody of color, we're always targeted. So this subject is a very great one. And Sean, thank you for taking my car from here on the Pine Ridge Union Reservation. Okay. All right, Chanupa. Have a great day. Appreciate your call. Let's bring our next guest into the conversation now, Robert Gifford. Again, he is a Native American law attorney, tribal court judge, citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And Robert, hello. Are you there? I'm here. Honored to be here. Thank you. All right. Wonderful. Robert, vehicle searches, arrests, criminal charges. Can a person learn any useful information about what we're talking about today from watching cop shows and detective dramas on television? A Law & Order fan wants to know. 
Well, I will tell you this. You know, uh, those shows are you know meant for Hollywood, and they, they're meant to spin things up, but they're also good lessons on what not to do. Uh, one thing I would definitely uh, tell folks is if you do get pulled over, you do get approached by a police officer. You know, if you if you come at them, you want you know antagonize them. You come at them hostile. You're giving them more reasons to do more, to keep you to keep you detained, to put handcuffs on you, to do further investigation. I have always recommended to all of my clients. I recommended to the people that appear in my tribal court to you know number one, be polite. Even if the officer is at, you know out of line, you know especially if he's wearing a body cam. Your, your reactions will be captured and will reflect well. Now, granted, there are some, and I, and I always tell people this, that you know, police officers, just like the worst, the worst criminals that they are, they all come from the same gene pool. There's good people and there's bad people, and there's good cops and there's bad, bad cops. And when you do run into the you know, nine times out of ten, if, you, you know, if you're polite, if you get pulled over, you leave your hands on the steering wheel until the police officer comes up, you, re, you have your window down, you don't reach for anything until he uh, until he asks and you ask for permission. He he recognizes right away that you are making sure that he knows that you're not a danger, and he will relax. And I've seen more people just not get a speeding ticket and just get a warning just because they did those little things. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, when you do have the bad cops, they're going to push the buttons, and that's that's a hard thing to do. Robert, uh, we heard from our caller earlier, Michael, talking about, you know, police officers, they, they might not understand a, a native accent, they might have, you know, they might have biases, they might be profiling, things like that. As a judge and somebody who's worked in, in multiple areas there in the criminal justice system, I mean, what can judges, prosecuting attorneys, juries, what could they benefit from learning and understanding about our native people? So some of these, because obviously this is a two-way street, right? I mean, we need to mind our P's and Q's, but so do they. Absolutely. I, I have given classes and trainings to police officers, to other, other lawyers, to other judges on cultural considerations of Native Americans. And granted, I always start off with the one thing is, I, you know, you can't stereotype and, and believe that one label applies to others, but there are certain things that do carry across from tribe to tribe. One is respect for elders. When I have a juror who is, you know, who, who's, who is native and they, they, are, they are clearly an elder, I make sure that I acknowledge that. And that goes a long way, whether I'm doing that either as a, in tribal court, as a tribal court judge, or as a criminal defense attorney in federal court. I acknowledge and recognize those, those cultural differences. And that's, I think, law enforcement, you know, depending on where they're located, where they're at. If, if they work for tribal law enforcement, they, they learn that, they are taught that, they are trained that. But again, in a lot of places where uh, the law enforcement officers don't have a lot of interaction with tribal members, they may be at a complete loss and not recognize the accent, not recognize uh, the, the need to at least show some, some equal respect back to that tribal member, that tribal elder. And they will find that things go a lot better because it is, like you said, a two-way street. Now, Robert, there in Oklahoma, there have been situations of tribal citizens being pulled over by police over tribal license plates. And this seems to create some confusion. There's some, you know, some uncertainty with regard to who has jurisdiction. Can you give us an update and uh, and what folks should know who are driving with tribal tags in Oklahoma? Absolutely. You know, uh, for the last 15, 20 years, tribal tags have been authorized and used by many tribes throughout Oklahoma, driving not just through Oklahoma, but, you know, state to state. There's never really been an issue. However, you know, 
right now in Oklahoma, there seems to be a battle of the wills between the state of Oklahoma and many of the tribes. And one of the things that they started looking at all of a sudden was they went back and reexamined the 1993 uh, uh, opinion dealing from the Second Fox Nation that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. In that opinion, it does make reference to tribes having a compact with the state. And that is something that really hasn't been hit upon. So now in Oklahoma, not all the tribes have compacts with the state of Oklahoma for their tribal tags. So they started targeting those specific tribes. So my tribe, the self, the Cherokee Nation, it does have a compact. Uh, the Chickasaw Nation has a compact. But some of the smaller tribes, you know, they either did not, they did not fully re recognize or, or were aware that there needed to be a compact because historically the Highway Patrol, the Tulsa Police Department, the Oklahoma City Police Department have not been pulling people over for tribal tags. In fact, there was a memorandum that went through the Highway Patrol telling them not to do so. But in light of the battles that the governor's been having with the tribes, they've now changed their course. What I am telling people now is uh, I think a lot of district attorneys recognize that this is an issue between tribal leaders and the governor of Oklahoma. And a lot of the smart district attorneys, state prosecutors, are realizing that we're not going to put this on the people. We're not going to put this on the residents of Oklahoma, who many are tribal members. And we're not going to put that on them for this misunderstanding. So they're dismissing a lot of these tickets. I haven't seen many. In fact, I've seen very few even go through. So that's, there's a good news on that aspect. But again, if the highway patrol is still writing those tickets, people are getting pulled over. But the one thing they can't do they cannot pull you over for having a tribal tag. That is not probable cause or reasonable suspicion for someone to be pulled over. They usually get pulled over for some other reason, whether it be speeding or you know, failing to stop at a stop sign. But having a tribal tag alone is not grounds to be stopped. There's also a defense to this. And I've been advising my clients this who are from tribes who have tribal tags that don't have the compacts, is that there is what's called the public authority defense, meaning that as a tribal member, if you relied on uh, information given to you from a government agency, whether it's federal, state, municipal, or tribal, that is a defense. And so for people who are willing to fight it, and so far, no one's, I have, you know, we've had very few of these that actually have to go into a trial or anything else like that, that is a lawful defense. And I think that's why the DAs are recognizing that they need to dismiss it, because there is this public authority defense that, that tribal members who relied on their, their tribal governments and gave them, gave them those tags have that as a defense. All right. All right. Good information. Thank you, Robert. We've got a couple of callers in the queue, and we've got time for one before our next break. Let's hear from Jordan listening on KUNM in Albuquerque. Hi, Jordan. Hey, Sean. How you doing, man? Doing well, brother. How you doing? Pretty good. I just wanted to share just a quick story. I I, uh, I was in the the drunk tank, as it were, listening to the Pogue song. You know, the, the, I mean, I wasn't the drunk tank, but, you know, I, I got pulled over. And I happened to be in a cell with a Native American gentleman, master's degree in architecture, everything. And he was asking me for legal advice. And, you know, I can kind of speak to the fact that I'm I'm no lawyer. I mean, I have master's in business, but I'm not, you know, but I was giving him advice. And I felt really, I'm like, wow, this is like an esteemed gentleman, you know, if you will, uh, that I'm kind of trying to like share that. I mean, we were both kind of stuck in the same boat, you know, kind of a overnight thing, you know. And I was like, well, I don't know, you know, consult consult a legal expert because I'm no legal expert. So anyway, I just want to share that. So, 
All right, Jordan, thanks. For, thank you for that call. Uh, we heard Chico talk about that a little bit, the jailhouse attorneys who are giving legal advice. And uh, so good call there from Jordan listening on KUNM. And we're going to take, uh, I think we've got time for one call before we go to break here. Joe, who is listening on station KOHN, uh, Tahona Otham Nation. Joe, you've got about a minute to make your call. Hello. I just wanted to know what the definition of probable cause. You hear that a lot of that around here, down here on this reservation, on uh, Tona Autumn Reservation. All right. Thank you, Joe. Definition of probable cause. I think we can cover that before the break. Robert, can you give us a definition in about 30 seconds? I sure can. Hey, that, that gives a law enforcement officer has to have reasonable suspicion, more likely than not, that a crime is being committed. And that can be a speeding, that can be you know uh, reckless driving, or it could be something much worse. To bank robbery, it still has to have probable cause, and that's what police officers need to do searches to get to your home and your car. Well, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to hear more from our guests, and we're also going to introduce Brandy Morin. So stay with us. One eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're wrapping up our discussion about how to navigate the criminal justice system. And in a moment, we'll also hear from a reporter who was arrested while doing her job in Canada. If you have a comment or question, you can still call in 1-800-996-2848. Robert, appreciate you getting that definition of probable cause in before the break. And, and you also explained to us uh, some of these issues there, some of these jurisdictional issues, specifically with the tribal tags there in Oklahoma. But there are some other jurisdictional questions there in the Sooner State. What else should tribal citizens and other Native people who might be traveling through Oklahoma be most mindful of right now with regard to any of these jurisdictional questions? Well, after the Supreme Court's decision in McGirt v. Oklahoma in 2020, um, which basically was the beginning that changed Oklahoma to where pretty much more than half of the state is now a reservation. Um, part, part of that, we had more or less the checkerboard jurisdiction, what a lot of people referred to through uh, trust land and, uh, and, and, and other aspects. But now we have over half the state, including the entire city of Tulsa, being on a, on a reservation of both the Muscogee Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation. And what we've run into is that we have police officers from the city of Tulsa who are still writing uh, traffic citations to tribal members living on what's now the reservation. Um, there was a, it's moved into federal court and went up recently to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver, which they found in the case is called Hooper. Uh, in the Hooper case, that the city of Tulsa does not have jurisdiction. And they had this unique argument that somehow that the, while the state of Oklahoma didn't have jurisdiction, the city of Tulsa still had jurisdiction to write these citations. But the federal court in Denver, the Tenth Circuit in Hooper, said no, no, they don't. However, the mayor of Tulsa has put out and made it clear that, he, that they are still going to direct their police officers to write those citations to tribal members. 
So when we do have somebody, and regardless of the tribe, if they're coming through at least the eastern half of Oklahoma and they get pulled over, they, if they have a tribal ID, if they have a tribal tag, if they have any, tri- uh, any, any information as to tribal membership, they need to, to share that with the police officers. The police officers can refer it to the tribal court for that jurisdiction, whether it's the Muscogee Creek Nation, the Seminole Nation, the Cherokee Nation, those tribes that are McGirded in, as we say. However, mm-hmm. most police officers are just letting those go. All right. That's interesting. What, what I find challenging about driving through that area too, Robert, is there's just, there's so many tribal nations and you got to be paying attention to, to where you're at. Cause you could, in one mile, you could go through two different tribal nations just on some of those turnpikes there. Absolutely. We have 39 tribes in Oklahoma and we roughly have 11 tribes that are now have full reservation status while the rest of the tribes do have large, uh, large, uh, Plots of land that are considered uh, Indian country, you know, using the federal term, uh, such as the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe, the Comanche Nation, the Kiowa, uh, the Apache, the Fort Sill Apache, they all have their own tribal lands, but they just don't have the the, uh, the complete county taken over by reservation. My next prediction, though, is that the Osage Nation will be getting its reservation back, and that's the largest county in Oklahoma and one of the, and one of the wealthiest as far as mineral, mineral rights. Okay, you heard it here on Native America Calling. Osage Reservation coming soon. Uh, Robert, we're going to take one more question here from a caller, and then we're going to move on to our next guest, Brandy Morin. And here's the question, Robert. Why is running your license plates not illegal search and seizure? Uh, Police officers, if they do pull you over for any offense, say speeding, and they do run your, your license plate, your license plate is authorized through your respective state, your respective jurisdiction. And so it's technically owned still by the state. And a police officer can detain you as long as he needs to. It's not an arrest. He doesn't have to read your rights, but he can detain you long enough to ensure that, number one, you say who you say you are and to make sure that you don't have any pending warrants or anything else like that. The more information we give to in, in, anywhere in society, whether you know your driver's license, getting this tag, what you put on Facebook, we are giving that out for, the, for uh, law enforcement authorities to use against you. Uh, so the more you, the more you share – the more you've made available and the more you've consented to, do, to doing the same. If you want to drive on any given state, there has to be an exchange of, number one, you have to be driving a car that has a proper tag, supposed to be having insurance, and that you have to have some form of a driver's license. And in exchange of that, you get to travel from state to state, down, down the highways, wherever they go, whether it's on a res or off. Thank you, Robert. Really appreciate all your insights today. Joining us now from Treaty 6 Territory in Alberta, Canada, is Brandy Morin. She is a freelance journalist, and she is Cree, Iroquois, and French. Brandy, and welcome back to Native America Calling. Tanse, hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, indeed, Brandy. Um, Well, your situation is partly related to our topic today. You were arrested doing your job as a journalist there in Canada, Tell us more. How did you end up in jail? Yes. So um, January 10th, I was covering um, the uh, an indigenous homeless encampment uh, in the city of Edmonton, not far from where I live here in, in Edmonton, Alberta. And um, now the police had been dismantling several um, homeless encampments throughout the city. And this 
one, which was indigenous-based, was on their list to clear. I just want to note that, um, you know, Edmonton is home to about 8% of people that identify as indigenous and yet represent 60% of the homeless population. So I was there. It was my second day there. I was doing some extensive interviews with people that were living in the, the camp. And we weren't expecting any police action that day. The police had been there the day before and done some negotiating with the campers. And uh, I was in a a teepee-structured tent doing some interviews and got word that the police were outside. And there were a number of different volunteers and advocates and such there that were there with the the campers. Um, Came outside to police finishing putting up yellow crime scene tape around the premises. And in less than 10 minutes, there was a confrontation between police and the campers. Police gave the campers an opportunity to leave um, peacefully or they would be forcibly removed and their encampment would be taken down regardless. So I'm rolling as this is happening. You know, I'm, I'm videotaping this, documenting it. And, you know, when the camp leader, um, you know, said he wasn't going to be leaving and you know, uh, advised his, um, you know, his supporters to put their eagle feathers up. The police moved forward um, to arrest them and, and, and plummet them. That's what I've seen happening. Now, as I'm recording this... Wait, I'm sorry, officer, Brent, did you say plummet or do you mean pummel? Plummet, plummeting. Like they, they, were, they were moving uh, towards them to okay. you know, push them down and take them down uh, to All arrest right. them. Thank uh, you. Forcibly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. That's <laughs> gotcha. okay. And um, so an officer came towards me as this is unfolding, as I'm documenting and um, steps in front of my camera and says, you have to leave. And I said, no, I'm media. I have a right to be here. She goes, no, you have to, you have to leave. And I said, you know, um, I'm not impeding you. I, I have a right to be here. And meanwhile, all this chaos is breaking out in front of me. People are screaming, police are pushing people down. And, and, you know, um, it, it was just um, a really, um, chaotic scene okay. and um, the, the police officer advised me to go behind a yellow a media exclusion line that they had created behind this yellow tape and I knew that these exclusion zones were unlawful because it's not my first time reporting on um, you know indigenous front lines where police are um, conducting actions and from there um, I was handcuffed and, and thrown in a police van and taken to jail and held um, for about five hours and now I am facing charges of um, criminal obstruction. Criminal obstruct- obstruction. Those are the charges. What's the status of those charges, Brandy? Oh, they're moving forward as of right now. Um, you know, I, I have a lawyer that's working for me um, out of Edmonton, and my next court date is February 16th. I know that the police provided finally disclosure, which is basically their evidence that they provide to the prosecutor um, against me. And they submitted last week 61 pages of evidence against me. And we have requested that uh, disclosure. And it takes, you know, um, about a week to get back to us. We'll be looking over that evidence. But my next court date uh, is February 16th. And as of right now, the the charges are moving ahead. But it's in the prosecutor's hand uh, to decide whether, you know, they're going to move forward, whether it's in the public interest, whether they have enough evidence to convict me of the obstruction. 
Brandy, earlier we were talking with two attorneys here in the States and and a big part of the conversation was just what to do, how you can avoid being arrested, how to prevent situations or encounters with police from escalating. And now looking back in your mind, do you think there was any way for you to avoid arrest or was this just going to happen? No you know matter? what? I think that if I may have you know, if they were physically pushing me to, to go behind a, an exclusion zone and it was about 50 feet away, I would not have been able to conduct my job properly to document and witness as a journalist, right? And so I think that maybe if I would have uh, agreed to leave the area, that maybe I would have not been arrested, but I also knew my rights and I asserted my rights in that situation. I mean, I was not expecting for it to go that far and for me to get arrested for it. But I knew that those exclusion zone were those zones were unlawful, and that I had the right to document that uh, their actions as a member of the press. You know, so I mean, it 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 may have gone the other day had I been sort of compliant as to the police, um, you know, uh, attempting to um, you know uh, corral us around as, as media and and you know, control how we do our work and our job, possibly. Brandy, have you ever been arrested before covering a story? No. No, but I've been threatened with arrest, and I've been on many different police uh, front lines from the Wet'suwet'en, um, people who are, you know, fighting a uh, pipeline going through their territories that they don't want, to the Ferry Creek blockades that have happened um, regarding um, the logging of old growth forests in B.C., where we've seen... Um, it what's been called the largest act of civil dis disobedience in the country where literally thousands of people have been arrested or other, you know, front lines where I've had interactions with the police. Um, and again, I've been threatened and, um, you know, but never, it's never come down to me actually being arrested and jailed. And what's the fallout now? What are people saying? Your peers, the public? Yeah. I mean, I have an incredible amount of support from, um, you know, the journalism community from national and international and press organizations from even Amnesty International that are, you know, calling for these charges to be withdrawn. And, um, uh, you know, I, I feel very supported in that way. I live in a really, um, you know, right wing centered province of Alberta and where the politics and the rhetoric of, you know, um, the Magna uh, movement, Mega movement, and, you know, Tucker Carlson was just here, hosted by the leader of our province where, you know, the media are really vilified. So that's a little bit of a tough environment to be in in this situation. But I really stand in, um, you know, my belief that I did nothing wrong and that I was standing in my right, um, you know, to do, to do this work and to do it um, properly. Now, Brandy, since your arrest, there has been some commentary about press freedom in Canada. And I know yeah. a, a couple of media outlets even had a headline saying your arrest, quote unquote, chills press freedom in Canada yet again. So my question, what conversations do you want to see move forward here with regard to, to press freedom in Canada? Yeah. Well, I mean, we know that this, you know, the criminalization of the media and journalists is happening more and more. We, we see that it's been happening in the United States. 
um, over the last several years, starting with, um, you know, the Occupy Wall Street uh, movements and George Floyd protests. Journalists were, you know, widely arrested. Um, but it's actually happening more and more in Canada. And what's happening in Canada is it's the journalists that are actually covering Indigenous conflicts or, you know, um, protests related to climate change that are being criminalized. And, you know, we know that the press and the freedom of the press is one of the pillars of democracy. And when that pillar starts to be compromised or eroded, then the freedoms of all are threatened. Um, You know, we see this kind of behavior from authorities in countries, you know, that are you know, dictatorships, and it's it's frightening. And if we start to see, you know, this happen more where journalists are targeted, you know, on the job, then I really think that that's indicative, right, of where, where we are headed as a society, you know, living in, in, in the so-called, you know, democratic, uh, you know, environment. Brandy, so you were arrested not only doing your job, but also standing up for something that you believe in. And I think a lot of Native people, uh, both in Canada and the U.S., can relate to that. Many Native people go to protests. They go to events with police presence. What advice can you offer to anyone who goes to an event or goes to a protest and there's a large police presence like what you encountered there at that homeless camp? Mm, You know, I... I just would advise people to be reminded of the power that the police hold. And they have the power to, um, you know, inflict um, physical harm upon people. They have the power to, you know, incarcerate you and take your freedom away. And I don't think that I would have felt as emboldened in that situation if I hadn't been there um, in the capacity of a journalist and asserting my rights. I've seen the violence that our people have experienced on a regular basis at the hands of police. And I wouldn't recommend anybody in these situations, you know, openly, um, you know, um, putting themselves into a situation where they could be harmed. Protesting is one thing, but I would really recommend in these situations listening to, um, you know, the, um, you know, the orders of police in these situations and, you know, doing your best not to put yourself into harm's way. All right. Well, Brandy, uh, good luck to you, sister, and appreciate you joining us. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, We're out of time, folks. We're going to have to wrap up the conversation. But uh, big thanks to our guest today, Brandy Morin, Chico Gallegos, and Robert Gifford, as well as our callers who joined us today to participate in the conversation. Hope you'll join us here at NAC again tomorrow for a look at Native Designs making their way to the international high fashion stage. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day. I'm Sean Spruce. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. Kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. You'll help organizations make change right in your own community. Find a service opportunity that fits your ambition. Learn more by visiting AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Yat-e. February is American Heart Month. 
Protect your heart by eating healthy, staying active, and managing stress. Heart disease can run in families, so talk with elders about your family history. For more information, contact your Indian health care provider. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Akihat. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.